Hello, and welcome to the Clockwork Game Design Podcast. I'm your host, Keith Bergun. You may notice that the audio is sounding a little bit different um, today. Uh, That's because I've moved to a new location. I am now living in Brooklyn, and I have a new space that I have not yet... I'm about half done uh, treating this room so that the audio sounds good. So there's going to be a little bit of an adjustment period here. Uh, I just moved in a couple weeks ago. I wanted to make sure that I got this uh, podcast episode out to you guys. I've been trying to maintain this uh, first Thursday of every month schedule. So um, today we have a conversation with Arnold Rowers, who you may know as Tiny Touch Tales. Listeners of this program almost certainly know of Arnold's games, Card Thief, Card Crawl, uh, most recently Maze Machina, and also some other games like Enyo and Miracle Merchant. A very good, interesting game designer who makes this, is one of these few people like myself and Brett Lowy and a few others uh, who make these, you know, single screen, turn-based tactical, uh, one-player strategy games. And Arnold actually is maybe the most uh, successful of all of us. Um, And so it was really interesting to talk to him about the business of indie strategy game design and development. And, uh, and a bunch of other things. It was a great conversation, and uh, I'm really happy to have had him on the show. I've been streaming pretty much every day. Uh, I do a lot of work on my game, Gem Wizards Tactics, which is going really, really well. We've got the business demons completely done, and now I'm just like polishing the game and making it more and more usable and understandable and easy for uh, playtesters to come in and play. And speaking of which, if you are a patron at the $5 level or above, that's the uh, bronze level or above, you get access to uh, the early version of Gem Wizards Tactics. So you can be playing the game now. Um, It is a very early version. Uh, Literally the first version ever, I think, went out last week. But um, I'm going to put out another version uh, later on this week that's a lot more cleaned up. And it's only going to get better from there. So this is a good time to jump in. And if you are not already a patron, uh, patrons uh, support this show and support my game development. So please uh, consider signing up to become a patron. Without any further ado, I bring you Arnold Rowers. We have a few topics in mind that I wanted to talk about. But uh, before we get into uh, any of that stuff... I just wanted to talk a little bit about like your life as an indie dev, um, how you got into it. I've been thinking more about these kinds of questions. Like, obviously, this is a theory show, and I definitely want to get into you know game design theory and rules and things like that. But I'm also interested to know like how do indie devs uh, survive and how do they uh, continue to make games? How do they get into games? That kind of thing. So, let's start with. Can you tell me a little bit about your background? Like, you know, what what's sort of your, what are you trained in or, or what is your day job if you have one, that kind of thing, and how you got into indie dev? Yeah, sure. Um, so I started, oh, let, let me start. I'm, I'm an educated communication designer. So I went to university for studying communication design, which is a very broad design study. It's... Mm, basically all kinds of fields that uh, come from classical marketing to illustration to audio design to uh, typographic design interface design and uh, in 2011 I finished this study with a interface uh, concept or project based on the iPad when it was new back in 2011 where I uh, made a concept about how a newspaper on an iPad would work with uh, aggregated data stuff that is completely normal today was really interesting and innovative back then and um, while studying I um, dabbled with flash games already we had a a a lecture um, about flash games basically and um, from there on I kind of started learning flash animation as well which I'm uh, really still fond of today and I'm most of my games I do animations as well and uh, from this from this kind of uh, lecture I actually um, got the connection to one of my collaborators on the games as well so it reaches back to this kind of uh, lecture uh, back then and um, from from uh, after the university basically I um, moved from uh, North Rhine-Westfalen, which is west of Germany, to uh, Berlin, <clears throat> which maybe the U.S. people will know from from hearing, uh, which is the biggest city in in 
in Germany and there I started in a, a mobile free-to-play company uh, solely based on the fact that I could animate stuff in Flash because back then uh, free-to-play games were still big on Facebook and they used a lot of Flash animated stuff uh, in the browser so to speak and yeah since then I've been um, uh, working in games industry so to speak like free-to-play games industry uh, switched back uh, in 2010 uh, 13, I switched the uh, companies to VUGA, which is one of the biggest German companies that do free-to-play games. Um, and in 2014, uh, while working full-time and having my, so to speak, indie stuff on the side, like each evening six to eight hours, <laughs> which completely exhausted me like one year, one year in, I really had to make my mind up about what I'm going to do. And I yeah, decided to actually went full-time uh, as an indie uh, developer. And um, yeah, in the beginning of 2014, I quit my job and started working from home, where I'm still working from today, actually. And um, yeah, since then, I've been doing my games independently without any uh, funding or outside money, so to speak. Wow, that's great. That's that's really cool. So um, you've had, you your games have been, you would say, like, successful enough to keep you going during that time? Um, yeah, so I'm always telling the story like this. So I started uh, in the beginning in January 2014 with savings uh, from my uh, full-time jobs, which was about $15,000, I would say. And I managed to survive one year off of that. And in the end of the year, I already was supported by my wife. Uh, I think in March 2015, so almost a year after going uh, indie, I released Card Crawl, my uh, Magnus Opum, so to speak, which I'm most known for still today, which basically funded uh, me throughout the years now, which was a big, as, in terms of mobile games, still a tiny, small success, but for a three-man team, it was like huge, made uh, about uh, $300,000 now uh, in five years. Nice. Yeah, well, that's cool. So, and, and you've had, um, run me through uh, your various games that you've worked on over the years and, and I guess talk about which ones were, uh, so that Card Crawl to this date is still your most successful game, is that right? Uh, no, actually, <clears throat> the one that came after, the Card Thief uh, sequel to Card Crawl, uh, so Card Crawl, just have to, just have to step back, uh, Card Crawl is a solitaire style dungeon crawler, so <laughs> back in 2014 when Hearthstone went big, I was completely hooked by the game and I really wanted to do something like that, but uh, knowing my uh, limits in terms of uh, what I could do programming-wise and, and what I could do as a yeah, small team, uh, I tried to build a solitaire style version of this kind of concept. And uh, yeah, Card Crawl as a, was a dungeon crawler theme where you go into a dungeon and, and fight monsters and loot stuff and you have ability cards like in, in Hearthstone that you can unlock and then do more interesting stuff. And um, as a follow-up to that game, I made a Thief-inspired solitaire style card game, which uh, is still, I think, my most successful in terms of numbers. Um, and uh, yeah, it's also still pretty, pretty. Um, I would say at least in the niche, <laughs> it's it's pretty wide known. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And then, and your most recent is Maze Machina, right? And that just came out. Yeah. Uh, uh, what? How? Like a few months ago, right? Yeah, fifteenth uh, of January, so beginning of two thousand twenty. Oh wow! Okay, cool. And uh, and how's that going so far? Yeah. Well, I. Um, uh, blog pretty openly about my games and um, I wrote it on my blog as well. Um, the game was critically very well received. I think uh, my fans, so I always always uh, <laughs> split my, my player base in my fans, people who, who blindly buy my games because they know my other games and people who are outside of the circle who just find the game on the App Store and, and uh, stumble, so to speak, into my games. I think most of them really like the game and its mechanics and uh, theme and art, obviously is is always amazing because I'm working with with very talented artists on my games and um, the yeah critical reception was very good but um, as I posted already the numbers were like not comparable to my last release which was almost two years ago now so uh, yeah since then the App Store has changed a lot and uh, even for someone kind of established and having a 
not huge, but the really sustainable uh, fan base, it was kind of surprising to see the numbers <laughs> dwindle out like that pretty fast. Yeah, I'd like to talk about that a little bit more. We've talked about that a few times on this podcast before about how the market has changed and uh, particularly on Steam, we've talked a lot about that. And yeah. um, but uh, but you're saying so that pre premium games and that's the way that you've um, sold your games. We're going to talk about premium versus free to play and all that kind of stuff in a bit. But um, can you talk a little bit more about your experience and how when did things change and how did they change in terms of uh, premium games on the App Store? Yeah, well, in terms of mobile games, it's pretty well known that, that premium gaming was dead maybe five years ago already when I released Cardcrawler because uh, yeah, the uh, free-to-play market is just gigantic, huge, and is, is growing uh, even today in, in uh, large uh, numbers that, that are almost like unbelievable still. And um, yeah, I mean... Obviously, it's a it's a big business for Apple, and um, still Apple tries to be uh, the cool guy, so to speak, and tries to push the premium games, which are mostly innovative, smaller games. And um, that's that's why I was always lucky in terms of promotion regarding to Apple. They they really cared about my games, and I back then and even today got really huge featureings all the time when I released a new game, which is in the App Store key. Uh, to actually selling a premium game because you will get buried in the in the flood of, of apps and games that are released every day nonetheless and uh, premium game that is featured in the on the front uh, of the app store has some kind of potential to actually make a quite a uh, quite a bit of money in the first let's say two to three weeks and after that it gets it gets buried uh, hardcore like like all the other games that that are going to be released but um yeah in in uh, let's say uh, two years ago when i released miracle merchant which which was also a card game i uh, got a big featuring and and the first two weeks went really well and I made like 50% of the lifetime revenue of the game in the first two weeks. So it's a huge spike in the beginning. And then, then the, the, the drop off is pretty, pretty uh, significant. And, and from there on, you have this kind of long tail that, that is like almost goes close to zero indefinitely. And uh, for Maze Machina, I had the same featuring, I would say, in terms of visibility. We had a huge, huge front page featuring, um, but still the the downloads or the potential of the downloads that that was there wasn't used so you can argue that there are multiple reasons for this there could be like uh, the app store icon could be not what people were expecting the, the graphics in the app store the preview video maybe the the game uh, style or the game mechanics are not what people were looking for or were expecting when they looked at the pictures or at the video but still i think um just from just from looking at the raw numbers the raw eyeballs that were on the game icon and on the store page less than 0.1% actually converted into buying users and the game's priced 2 dollars so um there's a <laughs> there's a huge gap between paying 2 dollars for a game and paying 0 dollars for a game and i think that's even more apparent today and um yeah Interesting. Yeah, no, I, I that sounds that sounds pretty much like what I've been hearing for for years at this point uh, in terms of how yeah. the indie game industry has been changing. So I, I want to ask you what you think about other models. Uh, the main other models that I'm aware of being free to play, uh, which uh, seems rather established as a as the uh, you know the way of selling games um, today these days. And also the subscription model, which is a little bit more maybe up and coming, possibly. Um, I have a lot of really good things to say about subscription models. That, to me, especially for the kinds of games I want to make, um, is, is a lot more aligned. It aligns the incentives for me in terms of like what is good for the players and also what is good for the designer or the developer. Um, so I, I have a lot of good things to say about subscription models, but they're also sort of like not totally tested that they can work, especially on the indie level. Um, but yeah, do you see yourself making a free-to-play game or do you see yourself continuing to make premium games? What do you see for yourself uh, or for other indie developers? Yeah, uh, it's, a, it's a super interesting topic and it always comes up after releasing a game and uh, looking at the future of what's going to come up next. And for me personally, 
Um, I still believe that um, the subscription model is a good model if you do it like you want to do it, like the lifetime support of one game. And I think that's that's a really, really good way to, to have a steady income, so to speak, and have, have reasons to continue to work on a game. I'm a bit more on the side of I actually want to try many different games. So I'm not sure if subscription would be the right way for me. I mean, I thought about it in, in a way that I might have like a personal subscription where people can get all my games but it's it's really hard to um to estimate this kind of stuff if it's if it's really worth it you really have to try it and and going back and forth with with monetization models is is always a big risk to uh, scare away a lot of users so um what i'm trying um for this year so i've made a little plan after maze machina uh that i try to split my time into two uh, things right now so one is uh, card crawl my the game we talked about already my my first game uh, is is still quite popular and i'm actually wanting to revamp this game in a sort of free-to-play manner i don't want this game to be like a total uh, psychological <laughs> death trap of skinner box and, and loot boxes and stuff like this but i really want to um Try to, you could describe it as try to make the game valuable for people who play it a long time because they are super hardcore fans. We have about three to four thousand players each day that at least play one game uh, from what I can see from my statistics. But those people play since five years each day and they never paid more than three to five dollars, which is fine <laughs> when you come from the premium gaming aspect, but it's yeah it's a lot of uh, potential they are wasted and i think a lot of people um would love to to pay more or would love to make reoccurring payments if it's valuable for them so I, i'm trying to revamp the game in a way that that it might be a bit more easy for those people to just uh yeah cost toss me a coin here and there and and not worry too much about um being ripped off in terms of of free-to-play monetization and um, yeah, the other part is obviously the the new players part, which which uh, yeah, just going free helps a lot with that. It's it's still not like it was like two to three years ago, where like being free meant thousands of users each day. I think even those times are gone, but it's still yeah, the barrier to entry is <laughs> way lower on a zero dollar price point than on a one two x dollar. Um, yeah. 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 So for, for premium games, there is that sort of middle ground thing where you can have the premium game, but then you can also have things that can can be purchased within the game. So they could be cosmetics, or they could be expansions, or they could be you know anything like that. And and maybe that's something that uh, you're you're thinking about doing in the future more of. Uh, mm, yeah, yeah, it's it's really hard to say because that's always the issue of there's still the the barrier to entrance, right? So even when you have this this small upfront price, you you have to convince users to actually buy your game. Having having in-app purchases in a premium game is viable in terms of expansions and stuff like this, but still you have to convince the user to to try the game, and that's the hardest part I feel right now for me, right. because I'm I'm pretty confident that once people try start to play my games, they actually find something that are that they are interested in in the game. But um, yeah, having a premium upfront price is especially I mean we're talking about the App Store in in the 2020 is like. <laughs> absolute no-go in terms of having a lot of new users at least and um, yeah just wanted to say uh, for the for the other part that i'm planning on right now um is i'm working on a new prototype that is unannounced and is uh, pretty interesting internally already developing but um i'm i'm wanting to i'm wanting to push this this prototype in a playable state that is really nice and presentable and actually go um, with Apple Arcade pitching again. So I already um, posted this on my blog as well. In the beginning of 2018, I already talked to Apple and they asked me what I'm working on right now and they wanted to have one of my games in the Apple Arcade subscription model as well. But um, time constraints and other constraints at the time didn't make it didn't make it possible for me to actually join the the launch date because it was uh, just too too little time and uh, this is why i'm wanting to make a prototype that is kind of solid and could be my next game but i wanted to pitch those guys first and see what comes out of this so i think 
uh, especially on Apple with Apple Arcade, it's a valid uh, it's a valid method to to actually make a game without the the uh, hassle and worry about the, the selling game part. Do you know how well um, developers who have been on the Apple Arcade how how they've been like is that a viable model? Because uh, that that wasn't necessarily a hundred percent certain to me from looking at it from the outside. Yeah, well, it's it's uh, kind of tricky to talk about it because I already signed the NDA with Apple. Sure, <laughs> and yeah, yeah, publicly yeah. on the podcast talk about it. It's kind of hard, but no, no, no. But I but I talked to a lot of people who are in Apple Arcade, and and all of them said it was a it was a good deal, and they are happy how it turned out. I mean, obviously, there's there's it's not the same potential in terms of what you can earn in the free market versus being kept by Apple Arcade. But I still it's way more sustainable if you get in apple arcade than than uh, releasing games on your own so to speak yeah, yeah. gotcha well, that's cool good luck with that i hope that i hope that goes well <laughs> yeah. I, I i too i'm i'm also a, a fan of the apple arcade i mean i i my only thing is that it's like so um monolithic that 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 sort of um bothers me a little bit because like we pick these few winners and and they get yeah. to have that sort of thing and then it's so it's it's definitely not like a broad solution. I think that, you know, I, I, I'm currently experimenting with like this Patreon sort of model. Um, and I think that there's probably other ways to do like subscription style models. Um, I'm very interested in all of those. I think like the more of those, um, maybe the better. Um, cause I do think that subscription is, I, it just, to me, it, it, you know, game development typically, like it is kind of like a service, like, you, you, especially the way that I guess more so the way that I make games, but even the way that you make games, if you're talking about making a lot of games, are, are you familiar with um, Sock Pop on uh, Patreon? Uh, yeah. 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 Sure. So they make these small games every, you know, I don't know, a few months or whatever. And um, that also seems like a, a really cool service. Or if someone was making puzzles or something like it just I, I'm really optimistic about the, the subscription model. I feel like the free to play model has a lot of um, downsides in terms of, you know, you need to keep adding stuff to the game and you're, or you're incentivized to do that anyway, um, beyond what necessarily the game would be good for the game. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm very excited to see how that goes. Yeah, totally. I, I think that's, that's a very valid uh, um, um, argument that you're coming up with because free-to-play mostly relies on content treadmill and, and monetizing the 1% <laughs> of the people who actually spend money and, and targeting those people with more content that they actually like is a like a second to third full-time job in, in 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 addition to actually making the game and and uh, that's that's kind of hard to do for for small teams uh, i mean when back then i worked at uh, when i worked at wuga they had like teams of tens tens to 20 people doing just business analysis and 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 data analysis all the time there were like phd uh, math guys sitting there crunching numbers to <laughs> to increase retention by 0.5% here and there and uh, yeah i don't know if i want to go that route so yeah that's why i also think having a a very dedicated fan base that is willing to uh, give you money on a monthly or weekly whatever basis is a very good um, yeah, way to actually sell games, games, that's for sure. Yeah, that's the other thing about subscription that I do like is that it seems the most maybe communal. Like you're 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 having this ongoing relationship with um, people who are your you know subscribers or whatever, and uh, and and I think that that's. You know, that's maybe that's the most important thing from like a financial perspective. But I also feel like, you know, like just artistically and in terms of like we're being creators in the world and like, why are we creating? We're creating to connect with people, to like, you know, communicate with people, some ideas about, you know, interactive, uh, you know, uh, possibilities and and I, and so I think that community is so important, and that's and that's also uh, something that I think aligns really well with subscription. Like subscribers are sort of like naturally a part of a community in the way that someone who you know, if I paid you five bucks for your game, it's like we're done here. I, we already made the transaction. I gave you five dollars. You gave me the game. We don't need to speak ever again. Kind of. Do you, do you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. Totally. And uh, I think that. Um, Especially the community aspect is cool because in game development you have these feedback cycles and these iteration cycles 
that actually needs the community to make the game better. And if you have this built in into your process, uh, it makes a lot of stuff uh, way easier, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I also think that, yeah, like um, I'm realizing more and more that like community is so important in terms of um, playtesting. And, um, you know, like I've, I've so many times in my life I've tried to design games with like zero playtesters and it's just it just doesn't happen. It doesn't work. It, it really is a communal process. And so, you know, people who are subscribers, like they can start playing, playtesting your new game. And there isn't this, I guess, you know, premium gets around that with stuff like early access, which I also think is is kind of cool um, as a way to get people in involved more early on in the process. Um, but it's that's a little bit strange, too, uh, sometimes. Uh, but yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm really excited about um, subscription model, and it's really cool to hear that uh, you'll be doing some of that going forward. Yeah, hopefully. Um, so uh, I also, we had a few different topics that we wanted to talk about, um, uh, but I did want to talk about your new game, Maze Machina. Uh, I played a good amount of it. I think it's a really cool game. I've, I've, I haven't, it, it feels different to me than other games in its sort of genre, I guess, in some ways. Um, mm -hmm. I understand that you designed it in a, you call it like a patchwork method for, for sort of taking ideas from <laughs> yeah. threes and imbroglio. Yeah. Uh, yeah, right. Uh, do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah. Um, so, I mean, obviously the listeners of your post podcast know what patchwork and clockwork design means. And um, yeah, since since I've been reading, have read your book, um, I'm I'm really aware of this kind of concept. But uh, yeah, the, the cool part about this game was actually that I made a seven day roguelike uh, jam game version of it uh, in 2017 already where I had this... Uh, short moment where I thought, yeah, Imbroglio, the Michael Bros uh, deck builder, where tiles uh, basically depict which weapon you can use based on the position where your character is standing, is uh, really interesting. And I really liked the, the whole concept, but uh, I was kind of, um, kind of interested in the idea of that you have to say, uh, if you don't know Imbroglio, in Imbroglio, the enemies can't use weapons that are uh, on the tiles but have a mana and a life system uh, that is basically based on the enemy type and um, they just do uh, like regular one uh, one hp or one mana attacks and i was thinking well, what could happen in this kind of uh, scenario when the enemies would use the weapons on the tiles as well so it's it's not basically just you that can use everything but everybody else can also use everything and um, to to get this kind of concept going i thought about how the interaction uh, in the game would then work and um, yeah i basically took uh, the idea from threes that the whole game board shifts which is like the in mobile gaming it's now the oldest idea in the book because this game was super popular and there were a lot of games trying this kind of this kind of whole board shifts around idea but in this kind of context it worked pretty well and um, yeah in the jam version i made a i made a, a free item version basically that only had like the sword which can directly attack an enemy that can't move away a shield that protects you and can stun and the bow that can uh, shoot over distance and uh, after the jam, I was kind of done with the concept and thought, yeah, it was interesting, but there's not much room to explore anymore. And um, yeah, uh, how things go, you you let a concept linger in your in your back, in your back of your head, and then it bubbles up again, and then you all of a sudden uh, come up with new ideas for it. And uh, yeah, I just prototyped a few, and and it felt really good, and uh, just just. Uh, also because of <clears throat> time constraints in 2018 um, and I wasn't able to come up with a new exciting card game I actually decided to just flesh out the idea of this game and uh, yeah so over the course of 2018 we made the, the full concept as a game. Yeah, very cool. I, I uh, The threes concept of sliding, you know, actually my game Escape the Omnocronom, it went through like four or five different major overhauls of design. But uh, one of the earliest one was one of those like sliding. I, I, I find hmm. that that sliding mechanism to be very, um, I don't know, there's something very enticing about it. Uh, there's something that, yeah. that feels because it feels, I guess, like so simple and elemental. And yet it can have all these emergent uh, possibilities. Um with how it, you know, with how it actually changes the the game state and everything. 
Um, and then I guess, you know, threes is just so popular that it's also kind of nice because players sort of intuitively understand that swiping mechanism as something. Yeah. It's interesting, though, because it like it's it's definitely one of those mechanisms that came because of a physical technology, that physical technology being the cell phone touchscreen and what kinds of things are easy to do on a cell phone touchscreen and what kinds of things aren't. Um, and it's just I, I've been thinking more about how, like, you know, physical technology completely like tends to dominate, like be the, uh, you know, the reason for so many uh, design innovations and ways that we design things. Mm. Yeah, and that's that's one of the major reasons why I'm still today love doing mobile games just because of the interaction with the screen and just the the constraints that also come with these kind of interactions and uh, yeah, especially as you said on mobile, the swipe to move stuff feels way better as when you play it on a PC with a mouse. The uh, connection is just isn't just there and and as soon as you uh, have the finger on the screen and and uh, stuff happens with your swipe, that's that's a really uh, yeah great feeling, just a great game feel. Yeah, no, I, I agree for sure. What what are your uh, do you have more future plans for Maze Machina or like what do you? I, I would love to, I love to hear developers talk about like what with their own games. What do they think worked really well, and also what do they think like could have been improved upon? Um, yeah, so um, I think the game itself is quite on the complex side uh, if you relate it to my other games I, I think you you said uh, uh, I think on Discord that it's actually not complicated enough <laughs> that it's kind of simple but I think uh, just the, the sheer amount of uh, items we have 20 in it right now is a bit much to learn in the beginning I mean I, this time I tried to design the tutorial in a way that is pretty open so you start with three items and then you can play with those items and then and the next item gets introduced and then you play with only four items until everything is unlocked so it's it's quite open in terms of how you can how you can experience the the the, the onboarding but still people I feel a lot of people are really confused about how how uh, few items interact. And there's a lot of stuff to be um, found in the game in terms of how uh, how how non-obvious interactions work. But um, I think it's it's interesting that in this kind of if you want to call it roguelike puzzle setting that there are some spoiler rules that that are not obvious until you see them and you can either die from them or you can make really good escapes in terms of or can make very efficient moves in the game which which I liked a lot so um, there were quite a quite a few interesting uh, I think you called it Rube Goldberg machine moments where where stuff is happening in a chained way and and a lot of stuff can happen that is kind of predictable but also not because in the game after uh, an enemy or the player uses a tile the tile switches to the next item that you don't see and um, uh, based on the uh, chaining uh, mechanism in the game it can happen that that completely uh, wacky things happen that kill you or the enemies so that that was kind of interesting uh, that that people still perceived uh, the game as as kind of complicated even though i made the onboarding pretty easy i'm right now i'm not really sure how to make it even easier maybe let people play with only a few items and after they decide that they have learned those items let them use more items i'm not sure that's something definitely need to improve um, another thing is that um, but it's more on the not on the design but on the technical side that the game has so many animations and we're using the super deprecated flash animation tool that <laughs> on a lot of devices the frame rate is really bad. I really would like to do some optimization for that but I'm not sure if, if I actually find time for that. Um, <clears throat> yeah and then I, I don't know um, I think um, in terms of uh, uh, game modes, I have a few different modes that also um, are a bit based on other games uh, where, for example, in the daily and in the uh, challenge mode, extra rules are introduced to the game. So uh, things that are normally don't happen in a regular game can happen. For example, um, enemies can always start with armor or an enemy can always start with the key in hand when it normally is on the board, stuff like this, which really... Um, 
yeah, uh, refreshes the base gameplay and makes makes for a really great um, uh, variety in, in gameplay. And I really would love to add more of those uh, rules, extra rules to the game, modifiers I call them in the game, uh, which um, have basically been been uh, in my on my list or on my I. Um, like things to implement in every game since I played a lot of Slay the Spire, where the relics basically, uh, <clears throat> yeah, change the gameplay quite drastically, and I think that's a really fun system. And uh, yeah, and speaking of the um, challenge uh, mode, um, which is a new mode that I newly introduced uh, besides the daily mode, which is actually a, um, a clone, so to speak, or. Uh, um, an, uh, another version of Zach Gage's uh, Insta tournaments, which he introduced in a Pocket Run pool, which is a pool game with also kind of randomly generated rules. And uh, he said, uh, I think that he liked the daily game as a concept, but it was really hard to judge your your performance in a daily game because so many people can play the daily game and then you're on if you have like thousand people playing the daily and you end up on place 856 <laughs> it doesn't tell you much about uh, if you played well or not well it's like really really random also when a daily game has modifiers that that change the game up very much and um, for the instant tournaments he basically made daily games that are <clears throat> um that only have 10 players, so you have a really uh, sh uh, small amount of players and those daily games uh, or those tournament games can be started uh, more than once a day. So every time you start a new tournament, you get nine different opponents and uh, everyone is competing on the same uh, uh, game board, so to speak. And um, what I liked about this concept is that you have this continuity and that's why I introduced a... Uh, sort of multiplayer ELO system to this kind of mode. So uh, each game is basically uh, on a, is going to be based on rank that you have and every other uh, player has and then you get rank points and you rank up or rank down based on your performance on each single game. So you have this, this kind of um, chained uh, high score that is basically played out over a lot of a lot of games, and I think that's that's a really interesting system because you you can go crazy and you have these outlier games where you perform really well or really bad, but over a course of many games it evens out. And um, from what I'm observing right now, I have a bit of backend statistics to look at. It's actually quite um, interesting how uh, the player spread is. So few people are very high up. And a lot of people are in the middle, and very few people are very, very low in the ranks. So it seems to to even out pretty, pretty nicely. Um, yeah, that's that's something definitely I um, want to continue to work on, especially this mode. Yeah, that sounds interesting. I mean, obviously, I'm super pro uh, single player Elo, um, but uh, and I'm I'm interested to talk about the Insta tournaments because I read Knocked Fisher's article about the ranked Insta tournaments, and I. I remember having some point of confusion about them, but so I want to revisit them in a second. But um, but I did want to mention about uh, oh about your game uh, Maze Machina because I did have some comments about the complexity because I think mm -hmm. it it actually has an interesting thing where it's it's in some ways extremely complex and in some ways extremely simple. Like obviously it's simple in that it has a four by four grid and that you know you just move right and that's like your basic action um, and those things are pretty simple. Uh, or you slide, you know, and the sliding can mean different things. Yeah. Um, but then it's extremely complex because specifically of the thing that you just talked about with um, taking the imbroglio thing, but making it that every monster also gets those tiles. So that means that every not only are you getting a different ability every turn, but also every other monster's. I think if I'm recalling cr exactly correctly, maybe not every monster. I guess not every monster is getting a different uh, item every turn or are they? Uh, it de yeah, it depends. So if they move, if they switch their tire, they get a different ability. If they stay on the tire, they have the same ability for the next round. And so, and so that's right. My comment was like, and if you were uh, just as an idea, even just as a thought experiment, like uh, what I 
feel like would make the game a little bit because I feel like there's like a bit of a learning curve. And in the beginning, when you first start playing, you're kind of just like sliding around and it's very hard to predict what's going to happen because the well, I mean, for one reason, there are like, as you said, like roguelike sort of spoiler effects of how things specifically work, the order in which things trigger, things like that. But there's also just like it's just kind of like it's it's like a lot to think about. Like, OK, so he's got the hook thing. So that means if I do this, blah, blah, blah. And then and then the turn after that, you also have to think about where are you going to land and what are all the monsters going to have? So there's just like a lot to think about in terms of like looking ahead at all, I feel like. And, and I'm sure that, you know, as you play more, it becomes easier. But uh, one thing that might make it uh, be interesting to play with or. Oh, you said you did try this, right? We talked about this already. Um, mm, yeah. I suggested having a thing where a player or a monster or both at certain points keep their weapon for even a few turns um but possibly longer than a few turns um just like if you had some like blank tiles for example or if you had i don't know some other system in which um not every turn everything would be changing in that sense but you said you experimented with something like that i'd be interested to hear about that yeah, yeah, right. Um, <clears throat> I, I'm I digged through my old prototypes and I found a version of of Maze Machina which actually uh, utilized a hex grid and did a, a similar idea where I was um, exploring the idea of having the tiles being empty and once a unit has an item in hand and moves on to an empty tile, it basically kept the item in hand and only. L- switches the item if he moves on a new um, tile that has an item and I'm not sure uh, if it if it was the context of the prototype and, and a bigger game board and a few different elements that were introduced in this prototype but I felt that there was too much moving around without anything happening so maybe it was I mean, it's hard to judge now because if I would change this kind of system in Maze Machina because the game board is so small it wouldn't be so bad but in the prototype that I worked on back then I had the feeling that there were like a lot of yeah empty moves that didn't drive the game towards the goal and um, that's why I kept it like this and um, yeah well, cool. Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, yeah, that uh, I, I think that's what's kind of interesting is that like these these designs have so many permutations that could possibly work and could get different things yeah. across. I definitely get that how it could be um, just too too sparse, I guess. Uh, but that's interesting. Um, uh, I, I really I really enjoyed playing the game and thinking about um, it. It just made me think a lot about like. How how do you because like you were saying, maybe a way to help players get like understand the game better is to start them off with like fewer items for a while. And it's interesting to think about these kinds of questions about like because this is, a, I think, a game that once you play it for a while, it, the, these these things that we're talking about stop being an issue as much. Right. Because yeah, you, you start right. it's yeah, you start sort of grokking it. But uh, in the beginning, for me, it, it helped it felt a little bit like um, like I would just kind of be like I'd be just making this turn move because I it's mm-hmm. too hard for me to like kind of look ahead because of all the all the second order effects that would happen and stuff. So I think it, it takes a little while to get through that. And it's interesting to think about, like, how could you how could you use um uh what's it called like incremental complexity or you know slowly introduce the game i I think your tutorial was really good i don't think it's like an issue of like you didn't teach the game well like that's what's also interesting is that i think you taught the game well it's just that like yeah i don't know it's an interesting challenge to think about that and i think that a lot of especially innovative games games that work in a different way and try a new thing have this problem or not this problem but this this challenge of like how do i How do I get people to to learn how to play this well and not be just feel like it's it's just, you know, crazy or random or something. It's funny because it's like it's extremely non-random your game, but it can actually kind of feel <laughs> somewhat random yeah. when you first start playing. Yeah, yeah, it, it has actually a pretty predictable uh, gameplay. It has a few output randomness elements that I purposely put in there, but still it's most of the time pretty predictable what is going to happen and uh, what I was thinking when I was um, this, um, making the tutorial was that there's a really weird curve, uh, so to speak, in terms of when the game gets fun or more fun. Because you start out with three items and the game is kind of 
not fun and then you introduce a few more items and the game becomes more fun but it also depends which kind of items are introduced one after another because there are so many different items and items uh, that work in different ways i had a really hard time to uh, find the right order of of introducing stuff for example the the sword and the dagger are pretty almost the same item with with one difference that the dagger is an instant item that that attacks a monster instantly and it can't move away from you and the sword has to um, actually have the monster standing in a corner so it can't move away from you and um, yeah I, I did a lot of uh, trial and error with introducing items in a different order uh, and uh, yeah it's it's also <laughs> difficulty as a concept is is so nebulous and there are few players that they they said this game is way too easy and a few players that said I can't even comprehend five items so it's it's really hard as I said to strike a balance between uh, having having a lot of items which makes the game deeper at least in terms of of what can happen but also more complex in terms of actually overlooking and learning everything and then somewhere there has to be like a, a middle pathway where it's easy to to understand but still interesting enough to to uh, to play so yeah yeah, just getting that tempo right is really tricky, um, and that's something that I think every developer probably has to deal with. Um, especially again, this is something that really affects you know highly systemic, almost board game like uh, rule sets that are original. You know, so that players yeah. like players can't bring in their bejeweled skills to this game or something like that, right? Like they can't bring in skills from some other game so much into Maze Machina, which is. Well, honestly, the biggest compliment I could give it, you know, or one of the biggest thing, <laughs> yeah, po like positive things I could say about it is that when I started it at, at it, despite the fact I've been playing video games for, you know, 35 years or whatever, I wasn't good at it. And that's such a nice, refreshing thing. That's something that happens to me when I play, um, you know, like designer board games and things like that. It's like, oh, I'm actually bad at this. This is, you know, because when I play like a shooter or like, a, you know, action game, FPS or whatever, like I have all this skill that I can take from 30 years of playing Doom or whatever that applies yeah. largely to that. And, and it's just, it's really refreshing when that doesn't happen. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's also it's so so interesting. I mean, you you obviously have a lot of experience with board games and actually sitting down, opening a manual and reading about some rules. <laughs> and on mobile, I mean, I'm running into this issue since since 2015 since Cardcrow that that people are just not used to actually sitting down, going through rules and and having to learn something new in terms of that they haven't played before. I mean, it's 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 a really nice, I mean, it's a it's a good issue to have in the end because it makes the game better and stuff but it's still like onboarding of my games and especially i think in card thief it was the worst uh, it's 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 a real problem do you ever think about getting into physical board games is that something you've ever had any experience with or any interest in because like for me uh i've you know over the years people have told me like oh you should really based on the kinds of games you want to make and and that kind of stuff like you really should get into the physical board game world where a lot of like weirder rules are much more accepted and you know people are more um patient and there's also you know kickstarter is still like a thing that you can do to actually fund like development somewhat and uh, and I don't know if you've ever thought about that, but um, yeah, I'd be mm. curious to hear what you have to say. Well, I I always answer this question uh, in in terms of playing board games. I really love the aesthetics of board games. I mean, as a German as a German kid, we played like many many board games. I mean, uh, basically in Germany, you're at the heart of the board gaming world. I I think especially the Euro gaming world, right? So I played. I played from a very young age a lot of board games with friends and family all the time and uh, again I love the aesthetics I love being with friends sitting around a, uh, a table and and all this kind of social stuff that is happening but but when you look from the development angle I think it's it's a huge huge uh, effort to to develop physical stuff because for me personally, I'm I'm I, in the last years at least I have been I have become so quick with with digital prototyping that I couldn't get myself to sit down and write down rules with my pencil and then cut stuff from hand. I mean it's a very uh, it's a very handcrafty and physical way of designing games, and I'm I'm not 
that much interested in actually doing it and and i think that's that's the main reason why i actually enjoyed making these kind of digitally native board games so to speak like card Rock, card thief and miracle merging they all take the aesthetic from the board game world especially with the cards and uh and the simple uh, uh visual uh representation and then then basically add on top everything that comes from the uh from the digital world where you don't have to worry about about um just physical stuff so to speak and yeah and i mean I've, the the thing is, I've been contacted over the years from several board game companies who actually wanted to work with me on games that I on on adaptations from Card Crawl like, and Card Thief, but I'm always but I always hesitant because I think that my games, at least the the digital ones, are that interesting because they come from the digital space and they are digitally native and they can do things that you can't do in a board game, and and if I would take away this kind of uh, magic, so to speak, that the digital uh, design brings. I think my my games wouldn't be as interesting. Yeah, that's interesting. Like, so I was just talking to a, another friend of mine who's a board game designer and talking about how uh, they're just having like a you know a nightmare of dealing with like the printer company and the shipping yeah. and all this stuff. Like, there's so many things you have to deal with in board game world. And I was I said to him, I was like. Well, hey, at least you don't have to do programming. And he was like, honestly, it's like it's the same amount of work. Like either way, it's just, you know, it ends up being the same. And it also ends up being it really does depend on like what you're comfortable with. And you're you have a background somewhat in programming. Right. So I think for you, it or at least even if you don't have a background there, like you've been doing it for so long now that it's so comfortable for you that you can just do it so fast. Um, whereas for me, like programming has always been kind of a struggle. I only really, I mean, uh, Escape the Omnacronom was the first game I actually programmed, really. Um, and, uh, and so programming is a lot harder for me and uh, takes a lot more time. And, you know, I, I screw it up a lot more often and all that kind of stuff. So, um, so that's why I guess for me, I'm, I'm kind of thinking more about board games. Uh, but it also does depend on the kind of game you want to make. I mean, I, you're, you do this, you're one of the few developers out there. And it's one of the reasons I wanted to have you on the show is that um, there's, there's a handful of developers out there who I see as really sort of committed to the single player strategy game. Um, you know, that, that kind of uh, model of a system in which you can make these ambiguous decisions and, you know, and you can win and lose or, you know, have some sort of winning and losing or type, you know, goal. Um, and uh, and they're single player. Um, uh, and and, and that, that's something yeah. that you're you're pretty like committed to. Right. Yeah. I mean, um, I've, I've been dabbling with a lot of games in in my past and uh, but i'm always coming back to to one thing which which inter interests me the most which is playing against the system i would call it it's like that it's the, it's the most interesting thing in my games and in in my my uh, way of doing games is that most of my games I have a few exceptions but most of my games besides ennio actually has no computer uh, AI, so to speak, no no artificial intelligence that actually moves pawns or, or, or things on the board, but everything is a system that just produces output from from the player's input, and that's that's to me is is super super magical because I can play test my games very easily. I can be surprised by my own design most of the time if they if they are working and it's really interesting uh, also to see how you have to approach uh, a game from from the perspective of having not an not having an opponent as a player or an an, an AI but just the system itself that that produces it, that produces game states so to speak and yeah that's why I'm always coming back to this kind of uh, this kind of uh, pillar of my of my design work is is having a a system that works in itself and is just is just producing output from player input. I, I that that I I love that and I agree with that. I want to push you a little bit further and ask you if you can explain why it is that you think that that's more or why why is that more interesting to you? Do you have any thoughts about that than playing against players or in a complicated AI? Um, 
I mean, uh, let's let's say separating playing against players, I also enjoy because uh, I play multiplayer games as well, and I think uh, there's a great a lot greater value to to be in a competition against other people. That's that's really really cool. But what I always think about the uh, when when thinking about the AI part is that that I'm also a bad programmer, maybe and. <laughs> that's that's one of the reasons why I'm not really into AI design and and uh, obviously this is a whole another field that you can like spend years on working in just just creating interesting AIs um, but um, for me it's I don't know it's it's hard to actually hard to to verbalize when I think about it but it's just a feeling that there is that there is a a non non uh, non steer to whatever system that that actually can produce stuff on its own i think that's that's i mean you can talk about emergent gameplay for example that's that's the most interesting thing that that only games can do in my opinion i mean looking at movies or books there's always an author that that does stuff for you and that somehow pre pre uh, um, composes uh, things for you and and only in games there can be like a, a an anonymous system, so to speak, that actually can produce new things that even you, you who who wrote every uh, line of code of the thing, can could not have thought of, could not not have predicted, and that's that's why it's so interesting to me. Nice, yeah. Well, that's uh, we're pretty much out of time. That's a pretty good note to end on. But I do want to ask you a couple of things before we go. One is, um, what games are you playing uh, recently? Uh, do you have any recommendations? Uh, physical games, digital games, uh, and yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I I have to admit that I'm a a big um, a first person shooter player in my free time. So I've been playing a lot of <laughs> player announced battlegrounds in the last two years. Uh, that's definitely a recommendation for me if you're if you're tired of uh, uh, of easy looter shooters. <laughs> and um, besides that, um, the last game that I've played was a pretty um, interesting game from Philipp Stollenmeier, which is a German mobile game developer, pretty famous, uh, made um, Pancakes the game, Burger the game, and also a few really, really interesting puzzle games, Zip Zap, uh, Seesaw, and... Uh, he made a game called um, Song of Bloom, which is a very, I mean, the, the whole game is a spoiler, so to speak, so I can't really tell you about it, but it's it's a super, inter super interesting experience to play through. It's really short, but uh, the amount of work and effort he put into the game, just having these kind of interactions that happen in the game was, was really mind-blowing to me. And um, besides that, um, I played a bit of uh, Noita, uh, on PC, which is this kind of Spelunky-like um, physics uh, simulation game where you're a wizard that's basically like in a Spelunky, like going down a cave and having to find the, the, the secret of the, in the bottom of the cave. And it's it's super interesting because every pixel in this game is simulated. So it's based on a sand-falling engine, I think they call it. And uh, yeah, it, it this, this game also produces crazy game states that I've never seen happening in a game before. So it's just worth checking out that. And um, uh, just uh, really quickly thinking about board games. Um, I actually haven't played a lot of board games in the last time. Uh, I think uh, Chris, last Christmas um, we um, played um, Camel Cup again or Camel Up. I'm actually not sure. I don't know if you know this game. Uh, it's, it's, yeah, it's Camel Up or Camel Cup but uh, you sh if you search for it, you should find it. It's a it's a, um, a betting game where you're betting on camels that race around the track. And the main idea of the game is uh, that the camels can stack on top of each other. So uh, camels can hop on, on each other's back. And then if the the camel furthest to the to the bottom moves, it can actually move other camels around with you, and you're betting on camels. And and based on this kind of mechanic, your 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 bets get screwed, or uh, <laughs> you basically win because uh, another camel pushed your camel that you bet on to the to the finishing line. So that's definitely the recommendation. As well. Nice. Uh, yeah, I looked it up. It is called Camel Up. Although I see why camel you up, yeah. you weren't sure because yeah, the yeah, sea the, looks the like. The graphic on the box. <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, kind of tricky. Yeah, yeah. yeah. All right. Well, Arnold Rowers, thank you so much for coming on the show. And I'm really looking forward to everything that you do in the future. And um, can you give us uh, where can we find your stuff? Uh, you have a blog and uh, give us your links and that kind of stuff. 
Yeah, thanks again for having me. I'm a big fan of your work and everything you do since years and you helped me tremendously think about my own stuff. I think can't thank you enough for that. And uh, for people who want to check out uh, my stuff, you can search Arnold Rauers on Google or uh, Tiny Touch Tales. So little touch stories, Tiny Touch Tales, uh, which is my uh, alias under which I uh, promote my games. All right, well, thank you so much again for coming on and uh, I hope to have you on again. Yeah, see you soon, bye bye. Thank you so much for everyone for listening, for my patrons, for making this show possible. Uh, if you want to learn more, come to KeithBurgun.net. We've got a Discord community. All kinds of cool stuff is going on. Uh, we stream every day, so I hope to see you around. And please consider becoming a patron if you enjoy this show. Thanks so much for listening. See you next time.